Tonight's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, Audible, Blue Apron, and our contributors at Patreon. In our last show on May 27th of 2018, we took you back in time 11,500 years to the creation of the world's first known temple at Gobekli Tepe, a place that changed everything we understood about the lives, abilities, and knowledge of early mankind, who at the time were still hunting and gathering to stay alive. Somehow, they transitioned from that lifestyle to a sedentary one that began to take advantage of the cultivation of crops, but not before figuring out how to quarry 15-ton stones with intricately carved animals and human-like features on them, moving them hundreds of yards and then standing them up and aligning them possibly towards specific stars in the night sky. And for what reason? We can't know because Gobekli Tepe predates recorded history by 6,000 years. But we can't speculate. In order to speculate, however, we must steep ourselves in the knowledge that we do have about ancient cultures. Knowledge that has been handed down over the centuries and even millennia. There are clues throughout the creation stories of nearly every global culture that might hint at what may have been on the minds of the builders of Gobekli Tepe. Legends abound of cataclysmic events that radically altered the face of the earth and sent humanity scrambling for cover, struggling to survive at all. Is it possible mankind was barely embracing the ideas of civilization when it was nearly wiped out completely and forced to start over? This is just one possibility of many that may describe why Gobekli Tepe was built. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. We used to think agriculture gave rise to cities and later to writing, art, and religion. Now, the world's oldest temple suggests the urge to worship sparks civilization. Journalist Charles C. Mann, National Geographic Magazine, June 2011. Join us tonight for part two of our series on the oldest known temple in the world, Quebecli Tepe. We're back. That we are. And we're fresh out of listener segues to play after our commercials. If you'd like to send your voice in to us to be used on the show, visit astonishinglegends.com slash listener dash segues and just follow the instructions. Segues, S-E-G-U-E-S. That's a weird word. I feel like this link is a little (laughs) complex, but people have managed to do it. Can we add another hyphen and another word perhaps? Up until now, people have managed to do it. Astonishinglegends.com slash listener dash Segways. We need more now, or it's just going to be more bloopers. No, but yeah, please. No <laughs> one uh, needs to hear us trying to pronounce stuff uh, yeah. that Sarah has to end up using as a blooper reel. Yes. So please send in your lovely voices. Everyone really enjoys hearing them. Yes, we uh, do, especially. Absolutely. It's, it's it, always a surprise funny. to us, because yeah. Sarah picks them. We don't know what it's going to So when we're checking the show for that last check before it goes to get published... I always love to hear the segues. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Anyway, what else is going on here? Well, no doubt some of you were wondering why we were dark a week, had a show, and then we're dark a week again. Just wanted to quickly explain, being we're generally three weeks on and one week off, when we're making up our annual schedule, which we have to 
plan the whole thing out a year in advance, believe it or not. It just works out sometimes that there's gaps and things due to holidays, live appearances, personal commitments. This past week, it was Memorial Day. It was a little hard to get a show produced then. So just remember that if you listen to the outro of each show, we will always, always let you know when the next episode is coming. Speaking of which, this week's episode, tonight's show, is the beginning of a traditional three-week run for us. Mm, Yes. Well, quickly, before we get started, I wanted to let everyone know that I'm excited to announce that I will be attending the first annual Pottern Love Convention in New Orleans this year, which takes place from August 10th through the 12th at the Intercontinental Hotel. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, that's awesome. We had been to a couple of other conventions. Actually, Scott was uh, at twice at uh, Podcast Movement. I went with him last year in Anaheim, and it was a lot of fun. And yes, if you attended, you could see some of your favorite podcasters, but it's really more for people who are podcasters and people in the business of podcasting. This one is for the listeners. So it's really a great way to see your favorite podcasters in a really cool location. It's right on the edge of the French Quarter and five minutes walking time at the most from all of that action. Well, Potter Love is a podcast convention for listeners by listeners, and it's put on by our friends at Podcasts We Listen To, so listeners can get tickets, book hotel rooms, and see which shows will be there by visiting www.podern.love, L-O-V-E. Now, they negotiated a room rate of $129 a night at the hotel for all listeners, And that's really an incredible rate for a premier French Quarter hotel. And if you look at the website, it looks fantastic there. There may not be a better deal on a hotel room anywhere close to the event. In fact, according to the guys at podcasts we listen to, we could easily fill the hotel with podcasters and listeners. Now, wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. And a little bit wild, yes. We're all very (laughs) wild, anyway. (laughs) And while you're at Podern.love, get your tickets to the event itself and use the code ASTONISHING at checkout to get 10% off. And you'll, you'll see different packages there, depending on how many things you want to attend. So it's really cool. It's simple to use. It's really clean. You can see the schedules there. Uh, some of your favorite shows will be uh, doing different things on different days. So it's going to be a blast. Yeah, I'm so bummed. I can't make it this year. Oh, I know. Uh, yeah, I have a prior commitment related in no small part to the beginning of the third grade for my son. Anyway, well, check out Love for more information on that. Okay, now here's our last announcement. Our super amazing new coffee mugs are in the store now, and they look really great. They really do. It's always hard to know how the finished product is going to come out when you're just making choices on a computer screen with mocked-up artwork. But man, did these come out cool. They now hold 15 ounces (laughs) of whatever your favorite go-go juice is. Yeah. And they come in two colors, a navy blue and a bright orange. Yeah, we said that. Bright orange. It sounds whack, but they look pretty cool. It's a great combination. We're now in a respectable, in my opinion, range of fluid uh, holding capabilities. Yeah. (laughs) And at least 15 ounces. Yeah. But I love the new colors. And orange is a great color because if someone in your family or a coworker tries to use it without your consent, you'll be able to spot it from 100 yards. So head over to astonishinglegends.com and click on store in the upper right corner to get your mitts on those mugs. We also have all hats back in stock in four colors now. We're still working on some new shirts and stuff, so be patient with us on that stuff. All right, let's hunt and gather our way over to the Fertile Crescent. Yeah, so where where do we start tonight? We got so well, much to get through here. <laughs> we, we got a lot of stuff here. We do because uh, I think partly the beginning of this episode will be 
taken a look at archaeology in general, which we really have not before. Uh, yeah. We've not, we've talked about things in archaeology, of course, and we've mentioned a few things, especially, you know, with giants or some of the other uh, topics we've covered, but this is a hardcore archaeology subject and one of the biggest finds of the century. And I therefore want to start off with a correction. We're going to like to issue a correction. <laughs> well, not, not really. I'm not making any, any apologies for this. But yeah. it, no, there was something that was kind it of It was unclear. an error of omission, I think. No, it, it was because uh, you ambushed me and I was kind of uh, stumbling oh, over my, my words. Fault. It is. So we're, as we, as we get to the end of this, we'll see how it is. Yeah. <laughs> that was Scott's uh, peppering me with questions. I don't and know. I, uh, I think there's going to I stumbled. This, I have the feeling that this is going to be written from a revisionist viewpoint. Oh, well, there you go. That's also tying into our... Uh, history and archaeology <laughs> and anthropology. Yeah, don't try to soften me up. Here. Okay, so the deal is we had a couple of people point out that when we were talking about BC and AD and BCE versus CE. It's confusing. Yeah, yeah, current era and before current era. Well, anyway, how it went down in part one is that around an hour and 23 minutes, we start discussing the academic usage of BC with the Julian and Gregorian calendars, meaning B.C. meaning before Christ, and A.D. meaning Anno Domini, which is, that's little Ian McKellen from uh, Da Vinci Code. Never mind. He just, okay. he makes a real emphasis in, in saying Anno Domini. But yeah. uh, what that means, it translates from the medieval Latin as in the year of the Lord. That's more of the actual literal translation, but over the years, it's often said as, and transmuted to, in the year of our Lord, and not the Lord. So I said... Anno Domini after AD in part one. It's kind of a dash. I said AD, Anno Domini, indicating that that's what the initials stood for. But I also said AD after death, and I didn't correct myself. So I didn't want people to think that that's what that stood for. But, and this is the part where it's my fault, right? Because <laughs> we, you had another question. I think you were just like, you know, steamrolling me with questions. Okay, so, so I, if you make I a mistake, on. yes. If and I, then I talk, it's yeah, my fault. Yeah, because I didn't get a chance to go back and explain <laughs> the fact that, no, I'd grown up uh, hearing that a lot from people. After it's, death. Yeah, I've heard it before too. Yeah, I, it wasn't make that super mistake. prominent for me, but I, I had heard it before. It's one of those common mistakes that people make that it doesn't actually stand for that, but AD, well that, yeah, it's after the, you know, before Christ and then after the death of Christ. Christ. But if you think of it logically, it doesn't make sense because it does. It would not include the 33 years or so, approximately, that people believe that Jesus was alive. You know right. You're, yeah. So you're, you got, yeah, so you already got a gap sense. there. Exactly. So yeah. it, wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't be worthwhile for that. That's also the reason that there's the number 33 on the Heineken bottle. You've said that before. I'm no, not I'm sure. kidding. I've said it the other <laughs> okay, day as a joke. Right. Nobody knows why that's there. You, you still haven't looked that up. No, I've looked it up. Oh. They won't oh, say. They won't it's say. Like a, yeah, they like that people are Well, you know what? I'm going to guess Masonic. 33rd degree... All that jazz. Uh, oh yeah, there you be, go. It's a craft. It's a craft. The craft, Danny. So the other point, though, was people were asking, you know, regarding the use of CE, current era, and BCE, or before current era. You know, the Wikipedia entry on it states, the terminology that is viewed by some as being more neutral and inclusive of non-Christian people is to call this the current or common era, abbreviated as CE, with the preceding years referred to as before the common era or current era, BCE. So a few people have been asking, and we had a listener, uh, Megan W., she summed it up, I think, pretty well in the modern thinking here, saying that uh, AD and BC are being phased out because they're ethnocentric to Western culture. So that's mm. a good one-sentence explanation of that. It really kind of depends. We were, I was curious about this. I'm not sure that there's a movement per se to phase it out, but still, I think your younger researchers are moving towards that term. So Megan summed that up nicely in a sentence about uh, the current feelings, I think, of how that usage is viewed. 
But I think it depends also on the field you're in. So we had another listener jump in with an email to us explaining it from the point of view of history. So it might make a difference depending on what field you're in, history versus archaeology. So yeah, no, she's yeah. now this is Melanie, who is a history graduate student at Cal State Fullerton. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So she wrote in and thought she'd kind of weigh in from her field about the B.C. versus B.C.E. versus, uh, you know, A.D., CE, (laughs) that whole debate. And uh, this is from her email. I thought I'd share the insight that I have received from some of my professors on the debate of BC versus BCE. Forrest was correct in stating that it is largely up to the discretion of the scholar in deciding which form they will use. I have had wonderful professors who have used both. Luckily for me, my area of focus is the Civil War, Reconstruction, and the American West, so I don't really have to specify all that much. Yeah, but so (laughs) clearly she hasn't gotten to the First Civil War, which took place in 2400 (laughs) B.C. What? No, I'm kidding. It never happened. This is Uh, feeling a lot like the politically correct quicksand that we frequently wade into up to our necks. Yeah, (laughs) I I know. Well, look, we we try and avoid that, and certainly we're not out to offend anybody. And it seems that's what was interesting is that it seems with the field of history, it's a little more to your discretion. Maybe archaeology, especially with younger scholars, are trying to move away from that to be more inclusive. Sure. I understand that. But again, I've seen a, you know more than a few archaeology lectures from a, a bunch of different professors on the great courses of varying ages. And uh, again, I think that's also more personal preference, but well, maybe there is a trend towards the non-Western view, shall we well, say. Well, it's, it's a changing landscape. And frequently what we're doing, especially when we're looking at our research, we're looking at papers and ideas that are written from all different decades, at, at which point there were lots of different points of view on things, and, and it's evolving steadily. Someone may have written a paper several years ago that would have terminology in it that's now, as some of these folks have pointed out, it's being phased out. That doesn't mean that the paper is wrong, and it doesn't mean when you exactly, quote the paper right. that you should change how it was written. Right, you would just indicate, right. hey, this was written then. Back then, this is how they described these things. So, you know, it's interesting. I also want to make something clear, too, because sometimes when we talk about this stuff— we additionally hear from people who are like, stop apologizing and don't, you know, I can't believe people are, you don't have to yeah. worry about that. We like this. We're learning how this stuff is dealt with. It's broadening our horizons and it changes how we approach every mystery that we get to. I mean, this one is more rooted in science, at least for now, until we get to part three. Mm. Uh, mm. But it's okay with us to open this debate and talk about this. We like talking about this kind of stuff because it's things that we don't know because we're not in school right now and we don't get to be brought up to speed on changing practices. And, and we enjoy dissecting these kinds of things. Well, yeah, especially when it's very technical and academic in a sense. And again, we're out of these worlds. So we're going off of the research we're doing now, but we often get some feedback from people who are in the field of the subject we're talking about. Also, a lot of people who aren't that clear on it, shall we say, and (laughs) we don't want to be passing off misinformation as well. And again, it's for our own edification. Well, Uh, we and yeah, we have a responsibility to be as current, especially when it comes to science-related material, as current and accurate as we can be. Exactly. So yeah, don't see it as an apology, but it's an explainer. But yes. Uh, And also, I don't want to leave that hanging out there because, again, as we've evidenced, there's a lot of people who don't listen very carefully and they're going to walk away thinking that's the wrong thing or the right thing. You know what I'm saying? Either right. way. So we want to make it correct. We'll make it correct. So yeah. anyway, my personal feeling is that, yeah, if you want to be more inclusive, you want to look at it that way. If it was drilled into your head from all of your studies growing up, or you're just uncomfortable about referencing Jesus in your Julian or Gregorian time scales, or you don't want other people to be uncomfortable 
Say it however you want. Okay, and we did hear from one other listener, and this is something I thought was really interesting, um, and she preferred uh, us not to use her name, but she does have a master's degree in archaeology and works in the Midwestern United States. She wanted to point out that she, I want to make it clear I've never worked outside of the U.S., so I'm not too familiar with the proper terminology and techniques utilized by European Middle Eastern archaeologists. However, there's always the general archaeological terms and techniques that I can answer for you. And she went on to answer. It was kind of a long uh, email that had a lot of information in it. But one of the things that really stood out to me was uh, she directly addressed my question on how archaeologists dig each strata without disturbing the upper strata. And her answer on that was, unfortunately, unless we are using non-invasive techniques, such as GPR, which is ground-penetrating radar, or magnetometry, it is not possible. She goes on to say, archaeology is a destructive science. Once we excavate, the site is gone. That is why proper excavation and collection techniques are so vital to this science. Without proper mapping, photographing, and labeling of material culture, then context is lost. Without context, it is not possible to get an accurate interpretation of the site. First thing, I would just want to say thank you so much for writing in. I'm just going to call you Mary. Really appreciate you writing in. That's my made-up name. <laughs> uh, uh, the other one is Carl. We're going to talk more about Carl tonight, who was uh, uh, crushed by a T-pillar. But um, <laughs> here's the thing. I do appreciate you writing in and explaining that, because I was wondering, how can you excavate something that's underneath something else? And the answer is, you can't. You have to work your way down. It's the, right. It's the opposite of right. building a structure. It's you're, you're kind of tearing it down yeah. along the way. But here's the thing that's also interesting to me about what she's saying here. This just tells you how important it is, the, the role of the person supervising the dig. Oh, sure. Yeah. Because that's the filter that all the information is passing through. And how that person is, for me, whatever, I'm going to have to talk Hollywood and TV, that person is producing this. Yeah. And if they are not producing it the right way, it could taint the information that's coming out right. as you're doing the dig. So right. it's obviously, it's really critical. What systems are in place to protect the integrity, you know, and to get away from confirmation bias and all those things that creep in when you start going through something like this, just really fascinating to me. That's another interesting point made by Dr. Robert Schock. Now, this came to us because we were alerted to it by two listeners, longtime listener James Striebel and Patrick Terry on Twitter. And they said, hey, you got to check out Dr. Robert Schock on the Joe Rogan experience. And this was episode 1124, and it came out on May 31st, but it has a little bit to do, well, a lot to do, do with the Sphinx. Yeah, and I want to make something absolutely clear. Joe's show on Gebekli Tepe came mm. out four days after <laughs> ours, yes. and I just wanted to, I wanted yeah. lots of people listen to him. He covers a lot of the same kind of topics we do. Right. I just wanted to be clear that we are not aping his topics. It's just a coincidence, synchronicity, because no, we came out well, on the, on the uh, 27th. And he came out on the 31st. Yeah, it's not exactly the same type of show because really that's a lot of uh, discussion about the Sphinx. Yes. Because Dr. Robert Schock, his expertise is in geology. And he took a look at the Sphinx and decided like, man, there are things not adding up. Like within a minute of looking at it, the first time he, he saw it. And over the years, he's developed alternative ideas about how old it is. And roughly the dating now is in the ballpark of Gobekli Tepe. And that there's some parallels now. And so he does talk a little bit about that towards the end of the show. He mentions it throughout, but really mostly, again, it's about the Sphinx. But yes. again, now we're seeing parallels, which are really interesting. But the point I wanted to make about him and talking about archaeology being a destructive science is that the feeling is that you don't go into a site like this one and immediately rip everything up. I mean, I know it takes so long, but 
the feeling is that you should actually leave some of it for future generations to tackle it because the techniques will get better. The technology gets better. If only somebody had talked to the people who started out at Oak Island. <laughs> Oak Island. <laughs> the, yes, with the let's they try dynamite. Yeah. and dynamited Well, that one's, uh, that's like faded folly, you know. Yeah. And that, that happens so much within this field as well. There's been stone theft there. People were carting off the stones to use in their own houses. Yeah. That practice, I think the term is spolia, from the Latin word spoils, the Roman Latin word spoils, about borrowing, repurposing ancient works to use in your house. And that could be ancient, but say like you were, you know, say it's 500 BC, you took something from 1000 BC and you stuck it to the front of your house. Yeah. Because it's really hard to quarry stone. That's one of the points we're trying to make here. It's really hard to do something artistic. So you repurpose it or you just crush it up and reuse the stone. That's happened throughout history. And it's just a human practice. It will always continue. So same things happened at Gobekli Tepe. But anyway, yes, that's what he was kind of saying is that GT has only been explored like maybe 5% of it so far. Yeah. And it takes generations to do this. So if you, yeah. by the way, if you hear us saying GT, we're referring to Gobekli Tepe. Yeah, we might get back to it. I have to take a rest. My tongue does from saying it so yeah. often. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That and Chatul Hotek. Sorry. Ooh. Hold on. Yeah, that one came off misfired there. But Chatul because you can say it with the... Chatul Huyuk. Yeah. Chatulhuyuk, that's got a lot of uh, lot of dots and uh, lines over the letters there. Yeah. So, uh, but no, we have to take, <laughs> get to rest up for that. So anyway, that's the point. You don't go through and just dig everything up at once that you, you were doing it selectively. And also now with the geosensing techniques, you can kind of get an idea of what's there waiting for you. Hi, my name is Rhiannon Bear. And when I'm not expelling the forces of darkness, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Getting back to your point, that is part of the definition of archaeology and getting into more definitions. And really, we mentioned this in part one. And as we were learning about this, did not realize, at least I didn't, like, this may be one of the major arguments and debates within archaeology today. And we mentioned the ideas of processualism and post-processualism. Yes. And what we realized, like, as people heard that and chimed in, and even people in our ARC research group had debated, it's like, that fires a lot of people up. Yeah, it really <laughs> they does. Don't, you know, the processualists do not like the post-processualists. It sounds don't like a the lot ideas. like Sneetches and Starbelly Sneetches. <laughs> it's, and, uh, well, a lot of the average <laughs> folks are like, what's the big deal? I don't get it. Can you explain it? Well, You explained it to me, yeah. and I was surprised, because I had a hard time when we first came across this understanding it, but uh, you seem to have nailed it down relatively good here. I want you to explain it, and I, I want to explain why we're explaining it. We're getting ready to talk more in depth about GT, <laughs> and yeah. it's important for us to understand how you talk about it before we talk about it. Well, and we want to yeah. explain that to you because there's language to learn here for those of you that aren't archaeologists and don't do this kind of work regularly. Right. We want to make sure that you understand where we're coming from because we had to learn a lot of things about how this type of information is shared and analyzed right. and intellectualized. So this is why we feel it's important to understand the difference between processualism and post-processualism. Well, it has a lot to do, actually, about as we get into 
discussing the finds there and more so the interpretations of what was found there, how you look at that, what's accepted and how you process that, not only for the archaeologists, certainly, but for the average person who's interested in this kind of stuff. How do you look at that? Because that's often debated by people in the field, professionals, about what are we accepting here? How far are we willing to go with some of these suppositions of what the meaning is? Because there are two schools of thought, and that's what that is. But first, we had a letter or a message from one of our ARC members, Katie, who is in the archaeology field. She said, I just wanted to drop you guys a note and let you know that in the United States, archaeology is commonly seen as a subfield of anthropology as a whole. The subfields of anthropology are generally seen as archaeology, cultural anthropology, biological anthropology, and linguistics, with some people adding applied anthropology as a category as well. And she actually included a graphic, which we have a picture of Mm. in our show notes, if you go to the webpage for this episode at Uh astonishinglegends.com. And she said, there are different schools of thought and theories within archaeology itself, processual, post-processual, etc., implying there's some other ones. Yeah. Now, the U.S. multi-field approach has its root in the work of Franz Boas, B-O-A-S, mm. with the goal of obtaining a holistic view. However, I believe that in other countries, especially European countries, archaeology is seen as more of a field in and of itself, separate from anthropology. I think in Europe, archaeology grew more out of geology classical studies, but she's got a question mark on that. Mm-hmm. She's not sure. She says, I don't know all the specifics on this. Happy to look into it more. That's how the research core works. Mm -hmm. So many U.S.-trained archaeologists will also consider themselves anthropologists or will have training in other fields of anthropology, while outside the U.S. it seems to work differently. So that's her perception of how this works. Yeah. Well, no, it seems like there's a lot of... It's a fiery debate. Division in the ranks. Oh, yeah. Well, again, it depends on your attitude about this, because we had another listener, Jason whose wife is an archaeologist and just rolls her eyes at the post-processualists. Yes. <laughs> like, they're too touchy-feely. Like, how, how are they? Well, all right. So let's know, explain okay, so well, our listeners we'll can follow. Okay, we'll start with a definition of anthropology on Wikipedia. And that is, anthropology is the study of humans and human behavior and societies in the past and present. Social anthropology and cultural anthropology study the norms and values of societies. Linguistic anthropology studies how language affects social life. Biological or physical anthropology studies the biological development of humans. Archaeology, which studies past human cultures through investigation of physical evidence is thought of as a branch of anthropology in the United States. So there you go. While in Europe, it is viewed as a discipline in its own right or grouped under other related disciplines, such as history. Right. So So, that's basically confirming what Katie was saying. Exactly. So that's the definition on that, which uh, if you've been out of school for a while like us, it's good to brush up on. Well, here's the beginning of the story about processualism in archaeology, or what's called the new archaeology, and its opposing viewpoint, post-processualism. And because it's kind of interesting, and it actually ties in directly with what we're talking about tonight, because it's the beginnings of that. So there's two gentlemen here that we'll need to know about first, James Mellart and Ian Hodder. So we're also going to reference this, uh, as we did in part one, from Dr. Eric H. Klein's course from the Great Courses Plus called Archaeology, an Introduction to the World's Greatest Sites, lecture number seven, on Gebekli Tepe, Katolhuyuk, 
and Jericho. I think he did a great job of really boiling down a little bit of the history and the argument into things we can all understand. Yeah. I want to make a real quick point, by the way, although The Great Courses Plus is obviously a longtime and a good sponsor of our show, this is not a paid insertion of information. This was legitimately, we came across this through the course of our research and wanted to cite it because it was a, it was a really great piece of this story. As I said before, I looked there first to see if a professor at a renowned one has covered any of the subjects we're doing because... Why not? Yeah. <laughs> better, than, better than a few articles that are kind of sketchy you find on the internet yeah. and trying to sift through those to see which things line up and which things are, are not often mentioned. There's nothing like finding an article on the internet. At like the first paragraph is like, oh, this thing in the second one. And then it devolves into this really biased... <laughs> Like personal just, front, and then you just have to throw yeah. it in the trash. You're well, like, right. you don't. You know, you, this you went to, off the rails. Exactly. <laughs> it, well, that's what happens. You, you get information that you can't trust because you don't know where they're getting it from. They didn't check. They're no, just writing like, an entry. It's, it's like there's all these typos. Sometimes you can look something up, and it'll be some paper. You think it's a paper, but then it's like as it's progressing, it's right. like into the mouth of madness. So. Exactly. Well, this matters because again, as we go from part two here to part three, some of the ideas and theories and interpretations interpretations are going to get fringe. Yeah. <laughs> That's the term I think probably sums it up the best, or far out, or woo-woo, or whatever. But it's not from anybody just making stuff up. This is from research. But how do you view that research? How is it accepted? How so, do you interpret it? Exactly. So we're going to be paraphrasing and quoting a little bit from uh, Dr. Klein's course, because again, he gives the background on this. And what's interesting is that um, he talks about the excavation at Chetulhuyuk, where there was a couple of plaster skulls that were found, like those at Jericho. Remember, we were talking about the skull cult. That also features in GT, because that was a practice back then to detach the skull, add a little plaster, put it on your mantle. Yeah. Is a family picture. So Chetulhuyuk is another interesting site, and not too far away. That heyday was about 6,500 to 5,600 B.C., during the PPNB period. Pre-Pottery Neolithic B. Exactly. It's only about 209 miles by car or 337 kilometers due west from Gobekli Tepe in modern-day Turkey. So the story there is that excavations at that site started in the early 1960s under the direction of James Mellart, and he was a British archaeologist. That was an actual living village there. He has uncovered about 160 houses and uh, it, that's quite a find for being that old as well, because now we're talking about 3,000 to about 8,000 people living there. So it's quite sizable. But the interesting thing that I found out is that it informs a lot of the finds that we'll see at Gobekli Tepe, because the time range is about the same or can make comparisons from one to the other. So that's what that happens. Uh, Schmidt does that as well. You use what you found at one site to interpret what you find on this one because there's not enough information here. And so that one was definitely termed as a living village. But uh, there was a vulture painting there that they found that we talked a little bit about. Vultures will feature very prominently at uh, GT, possibly for defleshing the bones for ceremonial purposes. In fact, James Mellart, and now his successor at that site, Ian Hodder of Stanford University, found a number of burials beneath the floor of the houses, just like Kathleen Kenyon had found when she was doing her work at Jericho. Again, these three sites have a lot of uh, connections, but Ian Hodder is the guy we're going to now talk about because he is one of the central figures here. 
He brought in a lot of new ideas when he started excavating in 1993 at Katulhuyuk. He put a roof over it. Yeah. Which you can kind of see at GT as well. And the great idea there is that once you've unearthed this, now you're again exposing the site to the elements. Right. And they have a lot of problem there at uh, GT because like, I think some of the stones in the outer ring have a clay mortar, which insects get into, water's uh, a problem. So you're preserving it. And Mellart didn't do that so much. So he unearthed some paintings, which have now also suffered the effects of being unearthed and weathering. Ian Hodder also had some progressive new ideas. As we may have mentioned in part one, he had ideas like getting funding by partnering with a, a large local bank and naming the site or having naming rights like you would do with a, a sports stadium here in the U.S., uh, he got major sponsorship, as we said, from companies like IBM, Pepsi, British Airways, Shell. And you've never heard about this before. That's not really maybe a little cheesy. Yeah. But you need money from somewhere to do this. You can't just rely on mysterious billionaires all the time. Right. They're very few and far between. And also... You need the money just to keep going. So, you know, even Professor Klein says, like, well, that's not a bad idea. I mean, it's, <laughs> you've never heard of this before, but yeah. <laughs> uh, why not? Get some money, and uh, as long as you can have a little bit of freedom to do the research the way you want to and direct it, it's maybe not a bad idea. But mostly in the past, Ian Hodder's been known for his theoretical proposals regarding archaeology. And here's a little funny, ironic thing. Before coming to Stanford, he was a professor at Cambridge University in England, that's where he initiated post-processual archaeology. So here I, I might just read what Professor Klein has explained here about it. I can't sum it up any better than he did, but uh, he's talking about Ian Hodder and uh, the start of this theoretical movement, or a philosophy, I guess, a way of looking at it. Professor Klein says, well, it used to be that archaeologists only studied monuments, you know, lists of kings and types of pottery and artifacts like that, and mostly just using what is known as, quote, thick description to talk about them. So that's basically just, uh, as he says, describing a painting you would see hanging in a gallery, in that, look, we're just going to talk about what we see in front of us, not speculate, just describe, because this is what we found. But now, starting in the 1960s in America, there was an archaeologist, American archaeologist named Lewis Binford, and he developed what's called processual archaeology. And that's often called or frequently referred to as new archaeology. And he wanted to make archaeology into more of a hard science, more anthropological in nature. And by doing this, he was kind of continuing a trend started by other American archaeologists in the 50s. And their kind of slogan to sum them up, I love this, quote, archaeology is anthropology or does nothing, closed quote. So right. they're making a bold statement here. It is anthropology or forget about it. And a quick reminder for Merriam-Webster, defining anthropology as the science of human beings, especially the study of human beings and their ancestors through time and space and in relation to physical character, environmental and social relations and culture. So Lewis Binford, he is kind of spearheading this movement because what he wanted archaeology to do is to explain things, not just describe them. As we said earlier, that's thick description, right? Getting so he didn't that. want to be the guy in the gallery looking at the painting and telling you what he well, saw. Well, it's, it's like it's red, it's blue, that column over there is white, it's fluted. It's yeah. like, well, why are those colors on that painting? 
So instead of just this thick description of what and who, he wants archaeology and archaeologists to explain why and how. Turn it more into a science, maybe trying to find universal laws or, you know, generalizations about human beings throughout time to kind of explain this. And it's like, okay, so now we're seeing patterns. So now, you know, he wanted to use scientific processes, processualism. There you go. Ah, See? Okay, so that's where the name comes But here's from. another thing is a part of the movement is that he also wanted to be absolutely neutral and he wanted a lot of objectivity in this. Okay. That's more of the science. It's like, you know, physicists don't guess or tell you how they feel about something. It's like, well, look, here's the data. Non-preconception. That's what they used to say in the documentary film class I took is you can't have, you're supposed to have non-preconception. Don't go in with your ideas ahead of time before you start making the film because it's going to affect how you make the movie. Exactly. So yeah. it's, it's more of a tenant of, uh, yeah, again, getting back to trying to make it a hard science, trying to be uh, with that objectivity and uh, science uh, uses tests and uh, double blind studies and things like that to be objective. And if you can't prove it, it doesn't matter. Exactly. So that's what he's trying to turn archaeology into, or at least have a movement heading in that direction. And this was very different from what was going on with archaeology in the past. So that's, again, I, I would guess that's why they call it the new archaeology. Right. It's kind of a new movement of, let's get serious with this stuff now. So, and that's what became known as processual archaeology. Yes. And he was very influential in his era, in the decades of the 60s and the 70s. You know, he taught a lot of students as what happens in the universities. And they go out and they teach others. They spread the word. They, they're out in the field. But it was really an American kind of thing. I guess Europeans, they didn't take to it as well as the Americans did. Maybe because they were more classical in that sense. Okay. And maybe as a product of that, by the 1980s, there was a reverse reaction to this processualism. And what is that? Post-processualism. Oh, there you go. Right. Yeah. So and I, I guess the leader of the post-processualism, and this again is coming from uh, Dr. Klein's lecture. At the exactly. Great Just to reiterate, uh, we're following it very closely because I, th I think it sums it up very well in simple terms here that I can understand, certainly. Yes. Just to explain these two movements and their impact. Yes. And this is from his course, Archaeology, an Introduction to the World's Greatest Sites, and specifically it's lecture number seven. But this really was right on point for what we were trying to get at here. Apparently, Hodder's point was essentially that it was dehumanizing archaeology. It was taking away kind of the spiritual aspects of it and also just the idea that you're not looking at all the different possible influences that might have been present. Well, exactly. Just because you don't have hard evidence of a specific thing being involved, that doesn't mean that it wasn't involved. In his viewpoint, Hodder's, to really understand the past, you have to understand the people and their motivations. That's part of it. You can't take people out of the equation you can't really look at one area because you're not including all the voices. One point here is that you're not looking at, uh, take for example, women and minorities. Yeah. You're really looking at famous dead white guys. Right. Like Julius Caesar and uh, Alexander the Great. And so that's the voice you're hearing. You're hearing their histories, their take on it. And so it's kind of a way to make it more inclusive. Professor Klein states this as uh, Hodder's well-known reply to Benford's movement, and this is in quotes, archaeology is archaeology, and archaeology is history, but archaeology is not anthropology. Now, <laughs> there's a funny point here where uh, Professor Klein points out, like, ironically, Hodder is now in the anthropology department at Stanford. Well, there you go. <laughs> so you're still under, you have to categorize it somehow. Right, yeah. but that was his answer to Benford's quote, archaeology is anthropology or it is nothing. It's very 
don't tread on me, this stuff. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a different way of thinking about this and really about interpretation. Yes. I think the techniques are, of course, going to be kind of similar, but what do you make of what you find? How do you interpret that? And those are two big ways of thinking about it that are different and they don't interact always because uh, Hodder's saying that there shouldn't be as much use of scientific methods because Again, quote unquote, it's not a hard science. You can't apply that to the nature of humanity. No, and it's, what's funny is like, yeah, Professor Klein again says that uh, he's reminded of that constantly by his friends who are chemists and uh, physicists at uh, the George Washington University who remind him constantly at lunch that archaeology is not a hard science. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so their point being is that you operate on data and uh, math and uh, chemistry experiments and all that, and that can be calculated in trial and error, and uh, you can't really do that with archaeology. So essentially the post-processualists are saying there are no universal laws governing human behavior, and you can't really define archaeological findings by that. It's kind of silly. And ridiculous. It's that classic kind of thing where like, and I know this is my lowest common denominator mind trying to wrap my head around this, but it's like that thing in the movie where something really emotional and human is happening and there's a guy in a white coat with a clipboard. Like, that's what they're saying. They're saying, you can't right. do that. That doesn't work. You're not looking at all aspects of this. And to try to be objective and neutral about it is a waste of time. They right. actually said it was basically absurd, according to Klein. That's Hodder's followers, so that follows the post-processualist idea. Right, and that idea is still alive. It's still being practiced. But Professor Klein makes a good point, I think, in that you have to be careful with it because interpreting things a certain way can lead to other movements and schools of thought which, you know, we may not be able to make that concrete leap to, you know what I'm saying? Like sure. you might come up with an interpretation that is kind of loose or not totally agreed upon, and then you can affect whole societies that way. One case in point was Echetulhuyuk, a mother goddess figurine. Well, we don't know. That's the point here. A feminine figurine was found, and there was an American Lithuanian archaeologist named Maria Gambutas, she was a professor at UCLA, and she had the interpretation that this was a mother goddess figurine, meant to symbolize you know, fertility, motherhood, femininity, and that wasn't totally agreed upon. And so what Professor Klein is saying, like, well, look, these figurines, you have to be careful with your terminology here. It may not have meant a goddess. It could have been a female leader. And he says that she looks like she's on a throne, the one that he points to in the lecture, like it looks like, uh, yes, it's kind of a, a voluptuous figure, but seated in kind of a throne with, I believe, the armrests look like animal heads. Mm -hmm. There looks to be some kind of a shawl that's important to Gobekli Tepe as well around the neck. And he's like, that could very well just be a female leader, not somebody who is a deity or to be worshipped or something supernatural or spiritual. Or it could just be a female figure. We don't know. But to call it that, what that's done is that now Chatulhuyuk is now on the itinerary of a lot of these New Age Mother Goddess tours yeah. as a stop because it's now seen as sacred, which, you know, that site is more of a village. What's interesting at uh, GT is that there weren't really any small figurines found. Right. Unlike Chatulhuyuk, where that's a real common find, these tiny figurines which may operate as like really old time photos of stuff. Instead of a photo, you've got a carving. Or a tchotchkes. A, a tchotchke, a painting. Well, that's the thing, exactly. though. I mean, you've got the figurines. Where are they? They're in the residential area. 
Right. They're not at the temple. Right. So you're not bringing that in. That's an everyday household item in a way. Again, I think Professor Klein's point was that you don't know what the reason or purpose for this thing is. It could have been a fertility charm, just like you'll see people do this now, give uh, kind of charms if, you know, a couple's trying to get pregnant. There are some folk things that you can give them, some charms and different things, or or do the pendulum thing to guess the uh, sex of the baby. You know, we're still doing a little things like that nowadays. And it could mean that or none of that. We just don't know. So that is perhaps a consequence of post-processualism, right. is that you leap to these conclusions that maybe you shouldn't be. Now, how that ties in here with Gebekli Tepe is that some may be doing that, but they may have good reason to do that. Well, it comes down to that thing in the big picture of this. And by the way, depending on which side you're on, I guess, especially when it gets down to uh, the third part of our series on Gebekli Tepe, we're definitely going to be defined, I think, as post-processualists. <laughs> well, uh, we're, I mean, in terms of, we're we're, we want to look at it. We right. look at all, we're going to look at the processualist approach, but we also want to look at the post-processualist approach right. because we are open-minded. But I guess the thing about that that's interesting is this topic comes up over and over. Sometimes I wish we could have uh, Blake on with us from uh, Monster Talk, who is a mm, uh, yes. friend of the show, but also um, a very well-educated and well-balanced skeptic of things. And it would be interesting to have him on the show and say to him, this comes up on every topic we do. It's not just archaeology. It's whether it's the ghost story or the UFO or the whatever. Well, those are more clearly defined, I think. Because, no, well, they, well yeah. they're, they're clearly defined. But I guess what I'm saying is when there's a lack of information, when do you say who's right or wrong in their suppositions about the information. Well, then you look at all the background they have. What's their education? What are all the factors that they're bringing into making their assessment right. of what's happened? Like, for instance, if you talk about Andrew Collins, who we're going to be talking about a good deal because we're referring to his book as well, Gebekli Tepe, Genesis of the Gods. Mm -hmm. And it's a good book, and it's super interesting. Yeah. The question is, if he's making leaps in terms of interpretations, there's nobody really around to say he's right or wrong, really. So then the only thing you can do is try to take a clinical look at his background and how much research did he do, and are his opinions merited? Because if we walk in and sit down at the mic here in Blankenfortiana, right. right. and I say, well— Gebekli Tepe is clearly, they built a rocket there, and it went to Saturn, da-da-da-da. Yes, there's no way that you could probably say no to that. Well, I mean, mm -hmm. you can't say no, because there would be residue from a rocket and evidence of a rocket, but that was a dumb example. But I guess I guess what I mean <laughs> right, is in sure. terms of ceremonial behavior and yeah. that sort of thing, right. it's hard to know. Well, so again, what we're going to see tonight, when we take a closer look at the carvings of the figures on these pillars at GT is that that's all we got. We got some images. They're pretty good for the time period, pretty advanced. There's some skill there, but we don't know what they mean. So in an effort to actually not just say what, but how and why, it kind of branches both sides. I see this. I'm kind of in the middle. I, I do see benefits to both sides. You just don't describe what's there. That can be done by somebody with a knowledgeable background in the field to accurately do that and preserve it and catalog it. But why not take a look right. at uh, what the possible meanings are? Well, to wrap up this little section here on the two schools of thought within archaeology, we can end with Professor Klein giving his thoughts on what Gebekli Tepe is not. <laughs> to him, it is not the Garden of Eden. It is not related to the Watchers or the Nephilim from the Bible, and he does not believe that is connected to any kind of global catastrophe. 
I think he kind of vaguely makes a pointed reference to a book that came out in 2014. Which, which is the may, one I just, just referenced. Which may be that one. <laughs> we enjoy both points of view. We like right. to talk about all of it. That's why we do our show. That's where the stories are. That's what's interesting to us. Both sides of the spectrum, left and right, if you want yeah. to put these in those places. so Well, I think this is, is a good transition point before we start talking about uh, what was found there, because I think that setting this up, it's a good model of, I think, standard accepted archaeology currently, and that's what we're going to get into when we start talking about Klaus Schmidt's findings. But to end this on a quote from Professor Klein, what he believes Gobekli Tapa is, quote, it is, plain and simple, one of the most interesting sites currently being investigated by archaeologists. It may shed light on the earliest practice of religion, and it will definitely shed light on the period when humans began to settle down and domesticate plants and animals. So that's it for him, and we should keep studying. We should, you know, keep digging find out more stuff, look for more clues. But that's about as far as they're willing to go in interpretation. But you can go a little bit past that, I believe, and still remain in the realm of uh, processualism. I want to make a new t-shirt for us that says, (laughs) we're the non-experts they warned you about. Uh, (laughs) Oh, jeez. Oh, the site is not just claimed by the cultures of uh, of modern-day Turkey, but uh, Armenia as well. No, that's absolutely correct. I actually have some friends out here in Los Angeles who are Armenian. And when I told them this topic that we were doing, they said, oh, yeah, that's Portisar. And they explained to me that for them, Gebekli Tepe is known as an Armenian settlement and that it's referred to culturally by them as Portisar. And then the entire region is what they consider the origin of their race. So right. that's something to take into account there. There's a lot of uh, tricky politics there as it relates to the relationship between Armenians and Turkey. So you can imagine how all of that might be affecting the way that this settlement has been uncovered and how it's portrayed. Right. Who inherits the land, who has uh, maybe cultural heritage claims on it. But again, going back to the actual site, it's so ancient, it's really hard to determine. But we just thought it was important for you to know what people of the regions today, how they view it. So it's not just a Turkish viewpoint, it's also, there's also an Armenian viewpoint on it. This is Rudy Ariza. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. All right, so now we're going to go back and talk in more detail about the actual carvings, the images that have been found on these stones and what they might mean, but a thorough description that's going to set up as we get into more discussion about it, the possible interpretations of them, just kind of a reminder. So we're going to rely pretty heavily on a pretty good paper by the man himself, Klaus Schmidt, who worked at the site for over a decade, poured his life into it, and I think the stress of it did not contribute to his health very well. It's a lot to manage, and, you know, he's a scientist. He was an archaeologist, and he he loved this with a passion, but there's a lot of other things that go into managing a site like this and the findings and all that. But this paper by him, which came out in 2010, is a great overview and explanation with some interpretations by him to a degree within the realms of, between the borders uh, or the bookends of processualism and post-processualism. And it's called Gebekli Tepe, The Stone Age Sanctuaries, New Results of Ongoing Excavations with a Special Focus on Sculptures and High Reliefs by Klaus Schmidt. You were asking me before, is he kind of a 
processualist or yeah, post-processualist? It's, well, right. And again, redefining that. And also, I want to say, by the way, for people that don't know, most people who've listened to us a long time know this, but if you're new to the show and you hear the expression ARC, it is not Noah's ARC. <laughs> no, it is the acronym for our yeah. research group called the Astonishing Research Corps. Yes, but we're, is. ironically or uncannily, we're not too far from where people claim the ARC landed. Yeah, in this story, we are. <laughs> right, at yeah. Ararat. So, Ararat. So, yeah, what I was asking Forrest off the mic here before we started recording this section was, could we call Klaus Schmidt a processualist, which would mean, again, to, and I know we just said this, but mm. I like to say it a few times because mm-hmm. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it, but that would again mean the person that is literally describing what is there and not doing any interpreting. At which point well, Forrest said, well, Forrest yeah. said, we cannot label Dr. Schmidt. First of all, he has uh, passed away. He's not around to defend himself anymore on this. But secondly, <laughs> it's not necessarily, we can't say that any person falls specifically into this one category or not, because you had pointed out that Katie, who's in the ARC, had yeah. mentioned that he does maybe a little bit more interpreting than someone who was a strict processualist, right? Well, but not a lot. It, no, but, but it's, and that's really hard to define with strict the definitions yeah. here about who somebody is or where they fall. You can make generalizations, but I believe what she was saying is that, yeah, he does not limit himself to not describing anything. He's not just a thick descriptionist, Yes, to use that term. You know, it's not old archaeology where it's just like, we found these pots, we found the name of a king, there you have it. You try and piece it together. He does try and wonder about the meaning of some of these things without getting into the weeds or in trouble to a large degree. But I believe that she was saying that her feelings on it, Katie's, was that he may venture into interpretation a little further than most, maybe, yeah. of that school, but also he's the most familiar with it. Yeah, he yeah. is the most, yeah, because he's the guy that went back and uncovered it. You know, they knew it was there, but they thought it was just a cemetery. He's the one that went back. He's the reason we know about it. So he's the one that knows it the best. No, he spent a lot of time or, there. Or Plus, knew it uh, the best. Yeah, in the German Archaeological Institute in conjunction with the Schandlurfa Museum. Yes. But he's leading the dig. He's the main guy. Well, so, we, what, you know. and what we can say, that probably is decidedly not processualist is that the phrase skull cult appears in his mm-hmm. paper frequently. Um, <laughs> well, it's not, and it, it, is this yeah. the first time we've mentioned the skull cult or the idea? No, of no, the no. Skull I think cult, we, we didn't part one because don't worry, we're going to go down that road. Yeah, right? it's and again, it's not a pop term. I would say. Yeah, it is describing of a practice of these Neolithic peoples to revere the skull and the just the sheer amount of bones, animal and human, that have turned up in the backfill the number of human-shaped rocks that are supposed to look like human heads. So the head figures prominently in this whole site, as it does with all of these Neolithic sites. Well, it's at the top of your body. You know what I'm saying? It's the focus (laughs) point. It's what people look at. It has prominence. And uh, it was revered in different ways at uh, Gebekli Tepe. But also pretty much everywhere else, I would say, Jericho and all these other sites that are ancient. So just to remind everyone and ourselves what was found there, as opposed to other places like Navali Chori and Chitalhuyuk, is that there are no residential buildings here. So it was not a settlement. People stayed there for probably a long time. Certainly they had to build it while they were there. But no dwellings have been discovered there. And as Schmidt has described, there are two phases of this monumental religious architectural building that have been discovered so far. The older layer is much more interesting and impressive. The biggest main features of these rings that were uncovered are these giant T-shaped monolithic pillars 
each weighing several tons. We told you earlier how they were carved out and dragged over there somehow. They were stood upright in these circular enclosures. And to picture it again, if you haven't seen that, we have a few pictures on our site for yes. part one. It will give you an idea, the ones that we were safe, felt safe to use. <laughs> in these enclosures, you'll see uh, some of these smaller pillars, somewhat T-shaped, spread throughout. If you look at your old analog uh, clock face, you'll see, you know, 10 and 6 and 3 and 9. These pillars kind of ring this enclosure with these smaller stones. And between the smaller stones, there was an old, uh, I, I believe, kind of a clay mortar that was used to kind of stick them together. And then in some parts, there are benches, like stone benches, kidney-shaped benches for people to sit. But this is a place for... Uh, lack of a better term, it's a temple of sorts to come and worship at. That's what the feeling is. But the focal point are these two large stone pillars in the center facing each other. And this is specifically an enclosure D. Exactly. So the diameters of the circles are between uh, 10 and 20 meters. So that's over 32 feet or to over 65 feet. And the 10 to 12 pillars of this circle that comprise it are constructed with walls of quarry stone. So again, figure it as small pillars all facing towards these two main pillars that are then facing each other. And the number of enclosures, these circles, uh, you want to say these rings, the first four discovered were labeled A, B, C, and D in a range according to the date of their discovery. Right. So D, which by the way, and I just want to say this really quick, D is the most prominent one in terms of prominent evidence. Exactly. But that was the fourth one that was uncovered. Right. So later- That's why A, B, C, D is the fourth one. Exactly. So when we refer to them later as enclosures A or enclosure B, that's how they labeled and numbered them essentially. There were later enclosures E, F, and G, but as you just said, they're not as impressive. Right. And A, B, C, and D are all on level three, which is the oldest level excavated and the lowest one at this point. And also another thing to remember about those layers is that the pillars are at their largest size. Yes. In the the ensuing years, they became smaller. And that's one of the unique things about this site. It started out very monumental, very much a temple and very evolved for its time. And then instead of evolving further in history, it devolved until it was abandoned Mm -hmm. just a few thousand years later. And the time from which it was abandoned to the rise of civilization in Sumer, as we've said before, is longer than the time from that rise of civilization is to now. Yeah. So just oh, keep that in mind. Another, uh, another factoid that was kind of fun from the Robert Schock interview on Joe Rogan, you were talking about the time of, from the pyramids to Cleopatra is longer than Cleopatra to the iPhone. Oh, wow. Right, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, did yeah. you look that up? And yeah. Is that... Uh, That's right. Well, it's a, you're, you're talking about the same thing then. It's a huge span of time for development of civilizations. And what went on then? Why was it so long? What took it so long to kind of get rebooted? Those are questions uh, that possibly this site has some answers to. But to describe the pillars themselves again, they are, as the academic world will call them, anthropomorphic. So they are meant to represent a human-like figure, not necessarily human beings as we know them, something human-like, meaning a head, body, torso, arms, legs you don't usually see. Those are kind of assumed to be stylishly just kind of embedded into these slots or uh, a hole cut out a slot so they could sit Stylistically, in there. Exactly. not stylish. It's not a fashion show. <laughs> right. Well, they're, they're talking about Ian but Hodder. Yeah. No, the, the, that's a, a funny point you bring up is uh, earlier, the I guess Ian Hodder had uh, staged fashion shows 
yes. uh, at some of these sites for and had fundraising. The models for fundraising. But th- again, the point with that is us telling you about that is that that line of thinking, again, is very progressive and a new way of thinking and doing like, hey, what can we do that's fun that'll get public attention rather than just, you know, getting out of the academic world of like, it's just some old, dusty old academics, knees in the dirt with paintbrushes. Who cares about all that? He's trying to drum up interest, but again, maybe going too far for many of their tastes. Yes. But new ways of thinking. So that's why we mention all that. It's kind of new and, and crazy and wild. And uh, that's his arena. But the pillars themselves, the heads aren't round, let's say. This is a representative human, a stylistic representation. A stylized version, and almost an abstract version. Because when you think about the letter T, first of all, we're predating language and we're predating writing. We're yeah. describing this as a T, but it's not even really a perfect T because there's a little bit of a curve to the top. But here's the other thing about that. The way that we think of a T is the way that you write it on a piece of paper. That's for us, the front of it is what makes it look like a T. These <laughs> T's in the yeah. column, right. when you look at them dead on, they're a straight line. Think about yeah. um, Flat World, if you ever read Oh, that no, book. it's your favorite 2D uh, character, right? Uh, yeah. What was it? You, you, like the wolf. In the wolf. The, the skinwalker. He turns uh, to the side. Oh, yeah, he turns he to the side and he's a straight line. Yeah, the, no, yeah. these figures are not brought to you by the letter T. No, the T is sideways. So for us, we, we would think of it as sideways because of the letter being sideways. But for whoever built Gebekli Tepe, the front of the T essentially is what we would call the side. Well, so, the face. Yeah, the face yeah. of it, although there are no faces. So the right. top represents like a head, yeah. but you're looking at it, first of all, sideways on the way you would look at the letter T. Right. And then there's not a face there, yeah. but on the column that supports the T top, yes. there are arms. And those arms are on what have now become the sides because it's turned sideways. Yes, exactly. So the arms right. are like, if you wrote the T down on a piece of paper, yeah. you would see the arms. But when you stand and face it, you mostly don't see <laughs> yeah. them. You only see the hands. Exactly. Because the arms come down the sides and then the hands tuck in the front. And the style all usually seems to be the same. The arms are not hanging down straight. They are bent. They come around to the front of yes. the person like you would be holding your belly yes. uh, down near your belt. Now, the other reason that Schmidt says that the head being represented by this cross, the top part of the pillars, is also supported as an idea comes from a pillar found in Navali Chori, where there's a longer face section and a shorter back of the head. So it looks more like a person. If you looked at somebody in profile, there's a chin, the back of the head. These are more like hammerhead type people, or as Scott said earlier, the alien animals. The alien, where you have a long back of the head. That's what it looks like. Yeah, it's, it's a like little, the, right. It's like the xenomorph, an right. alien, the alien. It's the long head. When you look, so like if you could get the alien to stand sideways, it would look like a T. Exactly. So, right. Just before you go any further, I want to make it real clear. I'm not suggesting these are aliens at Gebekli Oh, you weren't? No, I'm not saying that. Because you're going to get us in trouble. No. Aliens. I'm not doing that. I'm just comparing a shape, a stylized shape. No, you're right. Because people do people do jump to that. And especially Collins and uh, and especially uh, uh, Robert Schock will say like, well, you think it's aliens. And he's like, no, I'm not. I'm not saying that at all. I don't believe that. And what's funny is that then you get the ancient alien people really upset with you. Yeah. <laughs> as Shrock as was saying, it's like, no, no, you've described everything we're talking about. It's like, well, I, yeah, I mean, I've described some things, but it doesn't mean they line up to your theories. Honestly, to me, and we'll talk about this more in part three, the idea of the hooded figure, which is something that Collins talks about, yeah. and like this hood and that that represents sort of a large hood creeps me out even more. Uh, (laughs) That is very terrestrial, but almost like this being that has this knowledge and wears this hood like the emperor from Star Wars. Anyway, Uh, let's let's There you go. You and your Palpatine references. Yes. Talking about the human head, basically the proportions that were found. Oh, that was a point I was going to make. 
is that uh, you'll see this with Schmidt and I believe archaeologists in general. You find something that roughly correlates to the time period at another site that maybe has more information about it, more data, more things uh, that you can interpret. And you're safely. making a link. And you make a link. It's like, well, this was more clearly expressed at this site at Navali Chori. It probably means the same thing over here about 200 miles away. But Navali Chori is a couple thousand years newer, right? Wasn't it 6,500 or something versus 9,500? It, uh, it is not right. You're, it's a little bit later, it, so... It might be PPNB, I think. Pre-pottery uh, Neolithic. Uh, right, is the PPNA, but here's something I'll throw, you know, make me get ahead of myself. Gobekli Tepe might be even older than they've discovered. They don't yeah. know. Right. There's some theories that uh, they, they haven't even got down past the floor yet. Right. There might be things under there that are much more ancient, maybe another 1,000, 2,000 years. We don't know yet. Sure. So, again, this is all as far as we know. But yeah, Yes, if you're of that era, you can maybe make a, a parallel that uh, some of these practices and meanings at these different sites are carried through, even though it may be a few generations or more between when people were visiting and utilizing these spaces. All right, so to further describe the types of anthropomorphic beings these are in determining what we can by just the carvings that are on them, it seems, as Schmidt pointed out, the differentiation of the sexes was not intended. They are not clearly male or female. They were talking about the two big ones in the center, at least. And it's also clear that he points out, it's like this minimalist representation of a human being. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, yeah. a, it's a square, it's a giant T-shaped It's rectangle. straight out of SpongeBob. Right. <laughs> Something <laughs> SpongeBob could possibly be, yeah, uh, this, except this, for the defined uh, arms. Yeah. SpongeBob T-pants. Stuck to his sides. This was done on purpose because there are other statues and reliefs found at the site that show that they had the ability to sculpt things that way. Yeah. They just chose not to with these two most important monoliths in the center. Yeah. There's a reason they did that. It's probably not just a artistic style design. Yeah. Well, again, we don't know, but there may be some definite significance about why they were portrayed this way, whereas other carvings there found actually look like round human heads with noses but and beards and and the hats. It could just be that Carl wasn't good <laughs> no. at making people. Well, so, but no, maybe, but you know, years, we're going to have Carl do right. this part, and we're going to have Tom over here. He is super good with the <laughs> lizards and the, here, and here's, the crocodiles yeah. or whatever. So, you know, I don't know. Could be, well, here, maybe it's just different artists. Urfa man. Yeah. Is a, another ancient statue, which is more human-like. He's right. got a round head. He's got black obsidian eyes. Urfa, by the uh, way, is what, seven kilometers away? Robert Schock said it was a 15-minute cab ride or something, or yeah. less. Something, yeah. Something crazy, from, but from very close. Tepe, so, yeah. And then they're dating it roughly, you can say, that era, maybe. But that's eyes, a more human... nose, no mouth, right? No mouth. But yeah, so your point about like, well, let's give the hardest, biggest parts to the guy who can't carve very well. It's like, this was thought out. Yeah. What you can see here is that also we're going to talk about portal stones with little holes in them. They've seen little models of those. I was wondering about that before. If you don't have writing, I don't know what their language is like. I would love to hear it being spoken, how complex it was. But what's the next big thing? It's like to express your ideas in a staff meeting. <laughs> I'm gonna, I want to make this. Is this cool? Because this is going to take up another six months of our time here and a lot of food and manpower to carve this. So let's all sign off on this design before we get into this. Yeah. Rather than halfway through, it's like, yeah, I'm not digging this, this tea thing. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather have this thing to be more, you know, human-like or whatever. This thing, I think, was very well thought out before they started. Sure. And once you're, you're committed, 
That's it. And they kept doing it with different enclosures. So I agree with that thinking, is that this representation, this minimalist form of representation, was very intentional. And so another attribute is that quite often there is a specific kind of an attribute that is depicted, carved onto the pillars. And often this is like two bands of in flat relief, meaning not very well raised off of the surface of the stone. You'll hear the difference between high relief and flat relief. High relief meaning they've carved away a lot of the the base stone on that. So if it's like an animal, you can see the legs and underneath the animal and it's sticking up, but it looks like it's glued to the flat surface. Flat relief means it's kind of etched in. You've removed the base part of that, so it sticks up a little. So there's some texture there. You can see it. That's what they mean by flat relief. But usually what's depicted are these two bands on the front of the shafts. And it kind of resembles, this is interesting, a stole. Think of a mink stole. Think of a a wrap like a lady would wear before fur was not cool around themselves. But most likely a skin of some kind. Back then, and, they were probably wearing fur all over the place. I would be. It's warm. You know, like what you didn't really have uh, other choices. <laughs> so that's what you're wearing. And there was more animals than people. Well, exactly. So uh, again, if you're against that, it's like, well, eh, back then, if you want to stay warm and survive, that's what they had to work with. But this motif probably refers to a specific type of garment. And this is interesting here, as uh, Schmidt says, it's possible that only certain persons were permitted to wear the stole. So this might be a part of an important ritual robe. You'll start to see a picture here forming of of how important these center stones are. So they're wearing a stole, something ceremonial, like maybe a priest or a priestess would wear, Mm -hmm. uh, somebody that's important and spiritual. But in this case, until something older is found, it's not just a priest or a priestess. It's the first priest in the history of mankind. <laughs> One of the, as far just as so, we just know. To, yeah. yeah, just to set the bigger picture. The first holy, yeah, holy the people, first... shaman, uh, whatever, you know, however yeah. you want to view them, they're figuring uh, as representational here. And all, yeah, because yeah. In, in any other case, if you found something like this, you, oh, this is derivative of that, this points to this, this points to that, there is nothing that this side is pointing to. It is the tip right, of right. the discovery now. I shouldn't say the first priest. What I should say is the first artistic and for lack of a better word, almost permanent representation of a priest-like or godlike figure. Well, it's the earliest one we have so far. Right. Know, it doesn't we, mean that they weren't around before, but just nobody carved them, no. is what I'm saying. I'm not <laughs> saying that, because I right. don't know that. I don't think yeah. anybody knows that. No, that's, again, that's where you're getting into uh, too much interpretation. Yeah, here, too much they, interpretation, which is, uh, you know, TMI. Right, but, but, <laughs> but, and there's some things here that there's images, but they're not sure totally what they represent. I mean, obviously, if it's a belt, it's a belt. It's around your waist, your hands are on it. Yeah. You can take that to be a belt, but what do the designs on it mean? So Schmidt goes on to describe the Western pillar as wearing a necklace in the form of a bucranium, <laughs> which this, is... This, yeah. yeah, and this is an enclosure D. Yeah, exactly. So that's an ornament that is in, in classical architecture. I'm guessing it's kind of a sash thing. Usually it says, on, uh, especially on a frieze, having the form of the skull of an ox. So I'm not saying that that's what's being described here, but basically there is a... It's like a necklace sash of sorts. It's a representational band. And on the eastern pillar, there's a necklace in the shape of a crescent, a disc, and a motif of two antithetical elements whose meaning is not understood. So that's interesting in that they don't know what the crescent, maybe it's the moon, we're not sure, the disc, and then the antithetical design, I believe, is like chevrons. It's a pattern 
opposing geometrical patterns to each other. So you're seeing like, I guess it's abstract design, but very common to humans. It's like Greek pottery. You'll see designs around the top that are meant to be decorative, but maybe these mean something more than just decoration. Maybe there's meaning embedded within the patterns themselves. So as they started to dig down, they could see, yeah, these things have arms and hands and fingers uh, as they dug down into the dirt. And what was interesting is that they're both wearing belts with the relief just below the hands. So they're not resting like your thumbs are in your belts. But what's interesting is that uh, there's a belt buckle, which is visible in both cases. And on the eastern pillar, there are decorations on the belt in the form of the like the letter H and a C-shape figure, like a pattern. Now, this is interesting because... They're not sure what they mean. That's what Schmidt is saying. Oh, I don't know what, you know, it's not H. It's not the letter H and it's not the letter C. Much as these things don't represent the letter T, obviously. But you see this H pattern and sometimes it's tilted on its side 90 degrees. The C is either pointing up or down, I believe. But they may be representative of something bigger. So again, we're just describing here what the patterns are we're seeing. But others later on will describe these with more meaning and that Maybe it means everything. They should be mysterious about it, but we don't want to blow the deal here. But that's what it's getting at. There's another interesting feature on these pillars that there's a loincloth covering the genital region, which hangs down from each of these belts, each of these two opposing pillars. And it looks like a fox, again, like a fox skin. Yeah, fox pelt. Exactly. That there's legs to the pelt, there's a tail, it's hanging down, covering your swimsuit area. And what that means is that you can't really tell what the sex is of the anthropomorphic figure, the human-like figure. It makes it unclear, of course. However, as Schmidt says, since there are several clay figurines with belts found at the pre-pottery Neolithic site at Navalichori, those are all male. He takes that to mean there's a high probability that the pair of statues in Enclosure D are both and also male. Right. So again, he's making a connection between two disparate sites. That's another good point. Just yeah. based on proximity, distance, which is not super close, but... Right, right. Pretty but close. I mean, yeah. yeah. In, in the same region and also time period. Again, you're inferring what you found at one site. It's like, well, that's pretty similar. If that's what we're seeing here, we can maybe make that connection. And that these are not meant to be... You know, that's a male specifically or female pointedly, but we can infer that these are probably all male representations. So a lot of this imagery we had described in part one, but here Schmidt makes an interesting point in that uh, these reliefs, as he says, I'm quoting here, open a view of a new and unique pictorial language not known before, whose interpretation is a matter of important scientific debate. So far as can be seen, uh, the mammals depicted are male. It remains a mystery whether the relief images were attributes of the pillars or whether they were part of a mythological cycle, or they may have had a protective aspect, serving as guards, perhaps, or more probably, are part of a horrific scenario somewhat like Dante's Inferno, close quote. So that's interesting in that um, a couple things going on here. He's saying that this is a new language of images because before they have letters and uh, characters or whatever. It's a visual language of sorts using characters and designs, mm -hmm. which we sh we're still not sure about. At least they're not. The majority of the scientific community, the archaeological community, is not willing to place too much solid literal value in these other than to, again, kind of say, well, 
we're seeing patterns here. We're seeing motifs. And these motifs at Gebekli Tepe are consistent. You're seeing the same things repeated within each of these. And perhaps these pillars in the center, they're human-like, but they're mythological creatures, perhaps. And there's a protective aspect to them or a protective aspect to the pillars facing them. And as he said here, the somewhat horrific scenario like Dante's Inferno, I think it may be towards, uh, you know, a comment towards the types of scary animals. We're seeing scorpions, predators, hyenas, which can be nasty. And that if you do a processional walking within this, it's like running a gauntlet of scary creatures that are found in nature that could kill you. Yes. But also keep you alive. So right. I wouldn't say he's jumping towards any conclusions here, but he's enumerating the, the patterns here is that uh, this is what we're seeing come up again and again with his imagery. On the other hand, these are pretty naturalistic and they correspond to the animals that are being seen or would have been seen by these people in that time period. They may not be anything special other than these are animals that we deal with, some we eat, some we run from, some have killed us. It may have been important, much of a game, like a children's game where you see images of different things that you what sound does the cow make? But in a spiritual sense to these people, which was obviously much more complex than we're, we're getting here, but my point is that it was known to them. As we move through this, what I'm seeing is that this iconography, yeah, it's not like the classical era where you see uh, centaurs, minotaurs, uh, hydras, and all these other fantastical creatures. These are real creatures that they saw. But it's the start, it's the precursor, because this is now thousands of years before all that, yeah. you know, in the classical period of, of Greece and uh, some of the earliest mythological, you know, where it gets really complex of like what God and goddess is doing what to each other and to humans. This is where you're starting off with something that people can grasp. But what I'm getting at here is I believe that this is the formation of something where people are agreeing that this makes sense as a myth, because these are all things that they've seen. But in regards to that, there are some anthropomorphic beings with animal heads, which creep you out, I know. Yeah. Like the bird man. Yeah, the bird man. <laughs> um, well, that's so now. Yeah. I, have, I feel like I have a better understanding. I think there's a summarized term generally, uh, goat demon, creatures, as Schmidt says here, already known from upper Paleolithic art, but so far not seen at Gobekli Tepe. Another exception is the so-called Birdman, quoting here from his paper, a sculpture excavated at Navalachori, whose meaning is unclear. So here's a little something I, I want to tie this into, not to jump ahead into woo-woo land just yet, but this was in Robert Schock's interview with Joe Rogan. Just, yeah, just a few days yeah, ago. He, but he was, not to get too deep into it, but he was talking about major solar flare activity and, and what he would call the aurora borealis on steroids, where you're seeing all kinds of crazy shapes, which I believe some of these can be duplicated in a lab setting, mm -hmm. that if there was a major electromagnetic solar event that these people may have seen, and sometimes they look like stick figures, sometimes there's a Birdman kind of a character that appears out of these electromagnetic images, I guess. Right. And I wondered, like, when I heard that, it's like, is that what they're drawing? Is that what they're sculpting here? Coming from some kind of major event in the sky where a bunch of people saw that and like, yeah, you know what? Birdman does exist. We all saw him. He yes. lives in the sky and uh, he's very angry. Yeah. So let's create a monument to him and uh, try to appease him. Just a little thought there. It's interesting. Of course, Schmidt's not going to jump to that and he probably should not. But here's an interesting thing that was found at Gebekli Tepe, which is not uh, to be debated. It's pretty clear. There are no feminine motifs, as we were saying, 
at this site, except for one, which is pretty obvious, and it's a carving of a naked woman on a stone slab. It's in the layer number two. Right. The later layer. Younger. Not, yeah, younger, yeah. not the, not the older one. By one step from uh, where Enclosure D is. Right. It's, it's one, I think layer two dates to 6500 or so BC, I right. believe. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is, as uh, Schmidt says, it seems clear anyway that this depiction is not part of the original decoration, but more probably belongs to a group of engravings which can be classified as graffiti. Right. So, so he's like, that's how far hey, back. I got to drag a sketch a little naked lady on here. It was tagged. 6500 BC. <laughs> with a kind of a crude drawing and on meaning in several ways. Yeah. But here's my thing is not, it's not, um, I don't know if it would have been considered vulgar in the in the time. It still may be spiritual because we see a lot of this type of art depicting the female form and the power of birth and the miracle of it in this way. It's clearly female, but is that what they meant? Or is it some hooligan <laughs> sneaking into the site? You know, we're talking about generations, maybe, you know, hundreds of years, maybe a thousand years. Thousands. Yeah, after that, or like, uh, you know what, I, this place needs a little sprucing up. I'm tired of seeing all these animals. Let me just, you yeah. know, and then... Uh, and then you have that, but it, it doesn't seem hasty. It seems like it's been uh, purposely done with a little bit of skill. Yeah. This is John Feskins. When things go bump in the night, make sure you turn on Astonishing Legends to drown out the impending doom. So talking about male and female figures found at Gobekli Tepe, What's interesting to note, and uh, Schmidt points this out, is that uh, in contrast, Navali Chori, they found a ton of these little clay figurines that are anthropomorphic, male and female figures, in like over 700 of them. Right. And just to remind you guys, Navali Chori was a settlement. Unequivocally, yes, exactly. we mentioned this earlier, it was a settlement, 160 houses, thousands of people living there, lots of figurines. Right. So that's another reason to think that this is much more special is that they found over 700 of these things in equal numbers of male and female figures, but really none so far of these clay figures at Gobekli Tepe. Schmidt found that to be pretty remarkable. And it, to him, surely reflects some kind of a totally different purpose that these ritual buildings had as opposed to a village, a place where a bunch of people are living. So here's something interesting that he said. It's uh, these non-stylized, life-size human heads and statues, guardians of the T-shapes, perhaps? Uh, So as he says here, and I'm going to quote, it's now clear that the T-shaped pillars have an anthropomorphic identity. But who are they? As their faces were never depicted, they seem to be impersonal, supernatural beings from another world. Beings gathered at Gobekli Tepe for certain, so far unknown, purposes. Their identity is obviously different from that of the several life-size and more or less naturalistically depicted human heads found at Gobekli Tepe. On the basis of the one completely preserved limestone statue found at Urfa, not Gobekli Tepe, which is male and dates to the early Neolithic. That's where we're talking about Urfa, man. Yeah. It seems that the limestone heads are most probably statues of male personages. So, so okay, yeah. wait, all right. He's summing back up to, yeah, why are you seeing... But this is new information to me, and it's fascinating. This Mm -hmm. is not something that I had known about this, because you were the one that uh, parsed this paper. Mm -hmm. I actually hadn't had a chance to read it as thoroughly as you have. He's suggesting here, again, a little bit (laughs) post-processionalistic. Yeah, I suppose, suppose, sure. He's suggesting that... 
there's a hierarchy. There's a possibility of a exactly. hierarchy. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, we've yeah. got the large T-shaped pillars, which are these venerated important figures, mm-hmm. whether they be the hooded ones, which Andrew mm-hmm. Collins is going to be talking about, or whether they be, as he said, from another world, not necessarily implying extraterrestrial as much as supernatural or godlike. Mm-hmm. And there are those things. And then all these vicious creatures that are depicted all around, the not nice creatures of the day, are there to protect those, are the guardians of the pillars. Uh, or... I mean, that's what it says right here. Not <laughs> Well, it says, okay, it doesn't yeah. say that, sorry. Yeah. I'm making a leap. <laughs> now you're being post-processional. No, you're right. I went yeah. too far. Because you're saying it's not, no, it's the human heads. The heads are guarding... Well, human, oh, human figures. Okay, see, yeah. I'm totally confused. All I right. shouldn't have opened my mouth. Well, <laughs> no, here's... I'm making I know it worse. We're trying to parse, as you would say, something that is... Uh, there's no instruction manual for. There's no guidelines. There's no yeah. bullet points, cheat sheet. There's no uh, crib notes on it. So all you can do is say, like, well, to at least to Schmidt, that you have these... Human-like kind of massive figures, but you also have a different style of carved statue, which looks more human. Right. Like Snakehead Man. There's a skin, or they call him the skinhead. He's got like a uh, a snake that looks like to the back of his head, uh, yeah. a bald head. You can see ears on it, and the snake being a, a symbol of power, but this uh, head possibly have been either ceremonially or uh, ritually, or just uh, getting rid of it, somebody vandalizing it, throwing it down into the fill of one of these enclosures, I believe. So what what the point is here is that you have naturalistic statues that look like humans, that look like real people, but then you have these things that are supposed to be human-like, of course, like you said, arms, belts, sashes, or stoles, but they look so much different than the humans, which we knew they could carve, that they must mean something more. Right. These must be much more important and representing of something that is beyond human. I think that's kind of what Schmidt is getting at here, is that, again, these are perhaps celestial supernatural beings. Right. He's suggesting that the heads are guardians, not the animals. Yeah, exactly. Saying, the, I don't understand. Well, I'm looking the, at his paper. I'm but just maybe the, uh, well, the heads are representative of humans, actually, are protecting... Or keeping the animals at bay, perhaps. Or they are a conduit of sorts. Like you have animals, then you have a little step up. You have humans. Step up from that, but you see, have celestial an, beings. Isn't that an interesting idea, though? The fact that they have these, if the T-pillars represent these supernatural beings, yeah. maybe, or it's something that is worthy of some kind of worship, then hierarchically, then why do they still need protection? The supernatural beings? Yeah. Why is he listing the heads as guardians? It's interesting to me. It just, right. it, it's weird. <laughs> I always come back to movies and it's so stupid. It makes me yeah. feel stupid. Mm-hmm. But it reminds me a little <laughs> bit of the fifth element and how vulnerable the fifth element is. Until and it's finally formed exactly. in, in a certain way. See, okay, so so my theory here, and I have no this training on this at all. Hassan, yeah. You know, haven't even watched that movie in a long time. Yeah is that this is representational of a, talk about process, of a procession of an evolution of sorts of a membrane between our physical world and the cosmic, spiritually. We're going to see here that maybe it's some kind of ritual that demonstrates a movement or a connection or an interconnection between our world, our physical world, which is animalistic, dirty, dangerous, but that's the world we live in, to something spiritual where it's abstract, square. It's the monolith from 2001, standing in front of the apes. Yeah. Banging the bones together. And, you know, that contrast of like, 
I'm the knowledge of the universe, and you're jumping around and throwing your own poop. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That kind of contrast, but it's also a signal of communication, some kind of rite of passage of sorts. I'm just going way off the rails here. Yeah. To me, it's what it sounds like it's heading towards as far as like finding some kind of meaning here. You know, something that Schmidt also says about this skinhead is he's the so-called skinhead discovered at Navali Chori. That's, again, when we're talk- just talking about that. It's got a life-size human head with a snake atop recalling the Egyptian Uraeus snake, which protects the pharaoh. It seems to belong to a similar statue. So, again, he's making connections between this and another site, uh, Navali Chori, and the face was destroyed deliberately, it seems, sometime in the Neolithic. And as we said before, the head was used as part of a, a spolia. So it was like, just this is kind of a neat, cool piece. Let's stick that into a wall. And it was uh, used as spolia in the northern wall of the Terrazzo building, where the T-shaped pillars were discovered in the 1980s. And that's at Navali Chori. That's not at Gobekli Tepe. Um, just to be clear, there's T-shaped pillars at Navali Chori, too. Yes. Yeah. So the snake clearly underlies the importance of the person, but as the skinhead was found in the wall of the, of the Terrazzo building with its T-shaped pillars... It seems most probable that the status of the person depicted by the sculpture is much below that of the T-shaped pillar statues. That's another important point here. Mm -hmm. Humans who look like humans and are humans or meant to be humans, they rank below these T-shaped structures. Right, that's what I was just saying. Well, that's what I'm saying. He's also suggesting they're guarding him somehow. Well, uh, think about it. Dracula needs Renfield. Yeah. He needs a lowly, crusty creature to help him out because there's certain things that he can't do especially because he's vulnerable in certain ways. I'm just talking off the top of my head here. If you're asking about why do these powerful supernatural beings need protectors, or they may be more intermediaries and of the physical world. It's like if you are of a spiritual world, well, there are certain things that you can't do as a physical animal that humans can do. Who knows? This is basically what I see happening here is that humans are stuck in the middle. You know, at this point, they don't know where babies come from, really, probably, other than, you know, how to get that started. But where does the spark of life come from and all that? Where do we go when we die? Death is, again, a big part of these people's lives, the mystery of death. They keep it close to them. They bury it under their floors. There's something about it. So let's try and understand this through this mythology and this religion. It's like, let's kind of map out what we think we know so far is that maybe there's some kind, you know, we seem to be acted upon by these uh, forces, the gods. And what's interesting here is that maybe this is the first depiction of any kind of gods at all. These forces that act on us that, uh, and again, in the classical Greek sense, that have our fates, that they play with us as they will. But we have a little bit of power and they're also jealous of us. You know, there's an interaction there that they can't do all the things that we could do. And again, if you're asking like, well, you know, who knows? That's the big, that's the, that's yeah. the real answer here at this yeah. point. Yeah. Who knows? We'll see maybe there's bigger uh, meanings in all of these that can be imbued from actual study of other ancient items and information that maybe you can piece together some kind of meaning here. But like just what we have now, just what we're looking at now, as far as the stones, that's what we're looking at. So when you ask the question, who are the T-shapes? Well, this is what Schmidt has to say. An answer to the question, who are the T-shapes, may be a little easier when these non-stylized statues are taken into account. The more or less naturalistically depicted statues seem to represent members of our world, powerful and important, but inferior to the T-shapes, who remain in mysterious, faceless anonymity. 
The T-shapes seem to belong to the other world. The non-stylized statues seem to have the role of guardians of the sacred sphere. You know what I'm saying? Maybe the, it's the T-shapes that are the guardians. Well, and I want to make something clear here just to remind everybody, because I don't know if we pointed this out enough. The T-shaped statues do not have faces on them. They have what are understood to be heads, but not faces, just right. to be clear. It's blank. So when we talk about it being stylized, they have arms and hands and belt buckles and all that. And then the top of the T is the head, a sideways view of the head. But there's no face, just to be clear, or any real features at all on the bar at the top of the T. I just wanted to make that clear. Yeah, that is interesting that you're not having faces on. <laughs> I don't know. If you want to get supernatural, it's like the faceless ghost of some kind or, yeah. or the spirit. Uh, something, though, that's a pattern that I think Quaid mentioned in our arc there, uh, he was musing about this, is that when you don't have something depicted on the face of a statue or any kind of carving, it adds more emphasis to the parts you do show, I think is what he was saying. So you look at uh, Urfa Man, no mouth on it, but haunting black obsidian eyes that yeah. I think somebody showed us when we did the Black Eyed Kids thing. It's like, isn't this creepy? It's like, it's attractive. It's like shiny black obsidian. It makes me think of Coraline. But he's also got his hands down and he's covering his genitals. So it's a phallic structure. But what the point is for that, and, and again, no feet, uh, not depicted any feet, really the legs tapered down into a uh, something stone where he could be placed into it to stand there. So what the idea is that you make something and you leave other things out to give emphasis to the things that you leave behind. So when these statues look up, when they're looking and they're gazing up at uh, something else, it means reverence. But you're leaving other things out. And kind of the reverse, I remember in like classical art, it's like the genitalia on statues. Like, why is it so small? Because they want to de-emphasize that. They don't want to draw too much attention to that. But also you don't want to make the person a Ken doll. Right. So there's elements here that I think have gone through all of art. It's like you emphasize the things that you're making bigger, like the picture of the bull at Chitalhuyuk is massive. We talked about the size of the animals and the standard interpretation is that, yeah, these aren't uh, wild boars and uh, bulls that are 25, 30 feet tall. They're just really important and they're big and they're fierce anyway. And you're, you're showing a bunch of figures running around them trying to hunt them. It emphasizes the importance of it. So as we kind of wrap up describing what's there, here's one thing that I thought was interesting that's described, uh, that's been found at the uh, site are these, what are called porthole stones. They probably look like a soap dish to describe that there's a flat rectangular surface with no decorations on it. Smaller within that rectangle is another one that's got a raised lip on it, like an edge, almost like, a, imagine like Tupperware, the edge of, a, of Tupperware where there's a ridge and that's what the lid scoots down onto, but bigger, and this is made out of stone with a hole in it. Or Schmidt describes them as, as like a kind of a rectangular hat with a brim. Yeah. But in the center is an open rectangle. And what's interesting is that uh, Schmidt believes because these are similar to objects that are well-known and found in megalithic barrows of Atlantic Europe, where there are stone slabs with a central hole in it, that it may serve a similar function in that uh, those stones were defined as the entrance leading into the darkness of the grave. And at Gobekli Tepe, quite similar stones, he says, exist in monumental dimensions. One lying on the northern slope of the southeast plateau is over three meters in length. So these are big. So what the idea here is that these may be representations either, I'm thinking, either of somebody in a ceremony, as you said, like a processional where you're walking in, you go through the hole representing life to death to the other side, or maybe another dimension, or birth, 
or something, but you're meant to kind of walk through these. Or, and again, these may be out of place. They're not, I think they're not really sure. Now, here's something a little interesting aside. Robert Schock believes that they may have been acted upon. These stones, all these at this site, may have been affected by some kind of weather catastrophe. Yeah, you want to call it, you cataclysmic know. event. Exactly, that they were tousled a little, that they may have been much more sturdy and not as weathered, that they may have had like a lot of uh, radiation, solar radiation coming down, affecting them also lightning in a massive quantity, all kinds of stormy activity that somehow this may have been acted upon. This is not the natural state. And maybe that was filled in throughout these ages and redone from like ceremonial memory passed down from generation to generation. So that's an interesting area, but we don't know. But these portal stones are interesting because, again, they may represent some kind of a passage, some kind of a membrane from here to the thin place, as we've often talked about. But here they're made out of stone. So, and then there's one with a double porthole, which is like two rectangular holes side by side. And on the southern rim, what's interesting about this is that there's a very large relief of a snake, very large snake. On the western rim, there are three animals, a bull, a billy goat, and a predator showing its teeth or position. So obviously it's like animals are chasing people or they're just around these uh, on these pillars. It figures very prominently, but again, there's no TV. You got animals to look at and chase around and be chased by. But they each seem to have meaning. Predator, prey, food, threat, birds, sacredness to it. But these stones, anyway, the, I thought the stones were interesting because of um, the fact that I believe Schmidt thinks that they were meant to be gone through mm-hmm. in a ceremony. All right, so wrapping up the analysis of this paper by Klaus Schmidt, he does come to a conclusion. He's got a, a couple of paragraphs here. But the summation of that, as far as like, what is the meaning of the T-shaped pillars? Because again, to make the point clear is that that's the main focus of all this stuff. In these enclosures, A, B, C, and D, in the rings, as far as the height and the massiveness, they would take in the most amount of work, tremendous amount of work. Think about these as the main slabs at Stonehenge, kind of a deal. These are the big show. And so obviously they must have been the most important symbolically. But what do they mean? So in Schmidt's conclusion, he says, the question of who is being represented by the highly stylized T-shaped pillars remains open, as we cannot say with certitude if concepts of God existed at this time. So the general function of the enclosures remains mysterious, but it is clear that the pillar statues in the center of these enclosures represented very powerful beings. If gods existed in the minds of early Neolithic people, there is an overwhelming probability that the T-shape is the first known monumental depiction of gods. There you go. It's pretty heavy stuff. Get pretty heavy. Yeah, because how do you think about your gods? And again, like if you look at uh, Zeus in the classical times, well, he, they look like humans. Yeah. What's interesting here is that, I mean, there's beasts, of course, and strange things that uh, the gods of, classical, of the classical period uh, look like, but really they're much better than us. They're much more beautiful, handsome. They have special powers, but they look like humans. I think the point here is that we have humans, or things that look like humans, but then we have a shape. And this is what I love, the, something the explanation. That has, it has an implied superiority. It's the shape for something that has no shape, but needs to be thought about. And maybe this is the beginning of thinking about it.
That's going to wrap up part two of our series on Gobekli Tepe. We'll be back next week with our final part, part three. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Rhiannon Bear. Hi, I'm Rudy. Hi, I'm John Feskins. C-A-T. A as an apple. O-H-O-Y-U-K. And I give permission to... And I give permission to... And I give permission to... To Tulhuyunk. That's got a lot of uh, dots and uh, lines over the letters there. Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell, and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.